Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. One of the things that is interesting and different about PLL is that the players have equity. Is that right? When we went about building the PLL, we saw the opportunity in our industry, which is lacrosse and sports business and sports media. We could have just built another mousetrap, another version of what's out there. And this is like 10 and a half years into the social media era where the power dynamic has shifted from teams and owners to players. You've seen that come about through athletes investing, athletes taking equity and brand partnerships and athletes owning teams and realizing that it doesn't have to be a fleeting career. We were like, is hey, if we, if we are innovators, like we say we are, and if we want to disrupt sports, let's do more than just start a new league. Let's change the way that maybe professional sports at the team level function with talent. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show, It's just one step. I'm Danica Patrick, and I'm pretty intense. Today, I am happy to welcome Paul Rabel. He is a professional lacrosse player. He is the co-founder of PLL, which stands for Premier Lacrosse League. He's an entrepreneur and a two-time world lacrosse champion. I was fascinated with researching Paul and knowing more about him. And as I don't know that much about lacrosse, I really get the kind of character that Paul is. He's a go-getter. He's open. He's transparent. He's a thinker. He's intelligent. He researches. He's ambitious. And so it was just a really, it was just a fun conversation that took a lot of turns that I didn't expect. I mean, we even started talking about Buddhism, which is definitely not something that I thought, which I did not have on my questions for him. I did not find in research, but it just shows how open he is. And he was really willing to share his perspective and share what helps him feel his best, what gives him clarity, which which is, I think, just so helpful. So we just got into some fascinating conversations because here he is with the Premier League, Premier Lacrosse League, starting in 2019, hitting COVID in 2020, which was obviously uh, a pretty big uh, problem, And uh, but trying to build it. I hope that you have fun listening to the, the flow of this conversation and find a few nuggets. Well, I think it's only appropriate that uh, the first thing that you said was like, oh, I have a mic and I'm going to record the audio for you just so that you... Because uh, all I kept thinking with like, preparing and learning about you and is that your production crew value uh, drive accomplishment is so high. Do you just do you have someone filming you right now? No. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> but we think about yeah, we think about content a lot. And and I don't I don't know if it is my uh, just my general interest in the creative arts and media marketing. That's part of what I oversee at the PLL that has led to this OCD in a way of of production. Um, or if it's just knowing the path to growing in our case, a game is through content. And so, um, as athletes, you know, part of what we're known for is our attention to detail. And that usually comes out in practice. I've found with athletes who successfully take the next, um, you know, step in life in business or media or whatever it is that they choose to do that, that practice, that work ethic translates to other things. So I try to apply that same obsessiveness that I've had for 24 years of playing lacrosse to other things that I do. Hmm. I mean, I was an athlete. Um, a really fucking good one. Oh, no, um, I saw that you went to the Indy 500, um, yep. a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I have that same thing. Like I like, I don't mind being on show and being on, but then when I come home, I hate people up in my space. Mm. You know, I mean, even, you know, any money in the world that could afford as many people to cook and clean and take care of, like, I wouldn't want that because I don't like people up in my biz, yeah. um, meaning just in my space. Like, I don't care. I'm an open book. It's not a privacy thing from that standpoint, but just, do you ever get a little, like, I don't know, does it get old? Does, uh, I mean... I mean, we I wake up in the morning and the camera's rolling in the red light. And then you're like, man, I just let me get the sleepy eyes out of my eye before I I'm, yeah. I'm exaggerating. It's probably not that intense, but there's definitely a lot of a lot of filming happening. Yeah. I mean, our our origins are much different, right? You and, and what you were able to do to not only racing, but your uh, stature in the world of of sports and media and business was so big pretty quickly that the media that was coming to you um, was around the clock and probably invasive. Um, what my relationship to media has been through lacrosse, which was and is still considered by many a niche sport, that when I graduated from college in 2008, the game wasn't even being distributed on broadcast or cable television. Right. And I had a Facebook fan page that was picking up tens of thousands of followers organically. And it kind of tipped me off to, um, you know, to, to, to build or to create a life in doing something that I loved, I needed to build the media on my own. Mm. And so my relationship, I think, was different from yours and its origin. But in the end, yeah, privacy is super important. I just think being a lacrosse player versus one of the most famous athletes uh, of the last decade. In your case, I can turn that on and off when I want to more easily than you could. Huh. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going here because I think that, well, first it was obvious to me that there was that this, you know, you are so ingrained in the promotion of it, in the explaining of lacrosse in, yeah. And, and, and also just, I think, you know, just to help people have someone to cheer for. Like when I watched that video of you being at the Indy 500, I know that Colton Herta knew who you were because he's probably watched tons of your videos. Like okay. he played lacrosse and he could follow you. So he knew you well. Um, 
And so, but I think that the reason why it's, it's important is because this is what gave you, it's first and foremost, it's what's giving you the ability to promote lacrosse, mm -hmm. but it's also probably what gave you the idea to even start a league, like 100%. the fact that you had the vision. So, you know, I know I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse talking about all the background of it and the videos and promoting and the vision um, before we even talk about the league itself. But I think that that came first. Yeah. I mean, it would be like if you or that's needed. Totally. If, if you, when, when you won your first indie car race and that was such a big scene, imagine having done that in front of a quarter of uh, the stands full and no coverage across sports yeah. center, you would have been like, okay, this was, it doesn't displace the meaning for you as an athlete. Like when I won, won a championship 10 years ago, it feels like the championship two years ago, but we care so much about what we do and we know that other people are just like us because you've met the next young girls and boys that are aspiring to be the next Danica Patrick. And I've met the next young girls and boys that are aspiring to be the next professional lacrosse player. So they're there. They just didn't know how to access the pro game in my case. So, you know, we learn as athletes along the way through our sports sponsorship and agency representation and PR and learning how the teams in my case are run and the leagues run in your case, how the tours are being put together. We learn about the business. There was a need for me based on how I'm ingrained to, to, to either amplify it or fix it. If I was an IndyCar racer, I would never even have thought to have done that because the business was working, right? And it was it would have been more about, okay, how do I continue to grow? So I had this like complex mm -hmm. as a professional lacrosse player. It's like, damn, what I'm doing is so much fun and fulfilling. Am I having to scrape the bottom of, a, of the barrel for a living? Yes, but it shouldn't be this way. And I was seeing what the UFC did. We're seeing what F1's done in the last seven years. We're seeing what, you know, even like a lot of individual sports that have continued to grow um and team sports like the WNBA it's like the, the market is out there and it's not this massive moat in the 90s where it was just football basketball baseball so I had no sports business experience I knew really? how to build companies yeah because it was you know it was just applying problem solving to any scenario so a lot of like reading and researching and networking and asking questions but I knew it was out there and to your point when we were creating media through our social channels, originally it was just to talk to our fans. And then it became like, oh, damn, through the comment section and other things, like people really like lacrosse. How do I, how do I then help it become better? So where did this business mind come from? I mean, or capability even. Yeah, I think that it came from really two areas. One is when I was out of school, um, the rookie wage that I signed for was like 6,500 bucks. And then, you know, at uh, my- Sorry, a year? Yeah, for the season. Yeah, it was brutal. Like we were- You can't even live on that. That's not even minimum no, wage. No, it's not. And I had a, uh, I had a job at the time with a real estate company. I was a uh, an analyst, kind of like back my way into a job because that's what- 
a lot of athletes who even are playing division one at their highest level, if there's not a pro game, then you move on to the workforce. It's like the enterprise commercials. They're always pitching on like athletes going into the next stage of their life when there's nothing else to, to take the next step. And that's how lacrosse was. Um, but I was like, you know, figuring out how to pursue being what I wanted to be at the time was the best player in the world and one of the best to ever play we had world championships every four years. So I was training my ass off, but also to point number one, trying to figure out how to get a reasonable wage. And mm-hmm. so yeah. uh, part two is, all right, well, if, you, if you're known in your sport, what are some ways you can make extra money? Well, through appearances, through endorsements, and then through what I was running at the time, a, a camp and clinic business. Mm. So I was basically traveling the country, teaching kids and families and coaches lacrosse and then you know picking up registration fees from it so i was fucking scrapping like doing shit that like i bet you and i don't really want to do because it's pretty humbling to like travel to indianapolis with a bag and like some lacrosse pennies and work with like 150 kids and like you know uh stay at a like a a pretty like you know a grimy hotel and like try to like have nice margins and so I was learning the principles of business by necessity. And then I would pick up everything along the way with my Under Armour sponsorship and then a Red Bull sponsorship. And then I got access to stuff that other athletes at the highest level were doing. I was going, oh, this is what it could look like. Well, I mean, endorsements and showing up and getting paid for things tends to be a lot easier yeah. when the sport is bigger and the name is big. You know what I mean? Like that. So like as that being a way to make money, it's also still not easy when the, 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 the eyes aren't on what you're doing as much. So, you know, teaching kids is probably, you know, definitely a lot of, a lot of that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a ton of time, uh, but I had to think about things like marketing my camp business and, um, you know, building an LLC to protect myself legally and taking out insurance on fields and (laughs) customer service with parents who wanted to cancel the day before because their kid got injured. And like all that shit was running through my, um, you know, small company at the time. And I hired an assistant and, uh, and was figuring it out. But on the sponsorship side, I know from speaking to different brand managers I've worked with, they uh and it was because of that curiosity it was also you know when you get when you're constantly you know a second or third tier athlete and this is just to give people who are listening how like either closer if they're younger and listening how uh how long it felt away but it feels close to you and i is 2008 to like 2011 or 12. um and that was that was when people were just like there's professional lacrosse that exists and um and like who is this guy and so you 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 build thicker skin so i was probably a little bit more um maybe ambitious and uh and almost like negligent in the way that i would work with my brand partners and ask them for approval on like marketing assets and like oh who is the photographer who's the videographer how are we shooting this can i look at the storyboard and i was always kind of interested in that side of the business and maybe it was because i never thought that I'd be able to make it too long in professional lacrosse or what I was going to do next. But all of those bits and pieces were now a part of what I do today with the PLL because it's running the league. There's so many aspects to it. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Gaithersburg, Maryland. So a small rural town and outside of DC. 
Um, we didn't have much lacrosse and I played every sport that our parents would get us into. We played at the rec level, swam, did track and field, um, soccer, lacrosse later, basketball a ton. Uh, my brother played baseball. We played street hockey. We did all the shit that kids don't do today um, because we didn't have mobile devices. Our dad didn't let us play video games and we <laughs> were outside playing sports. That's awesome. I mean, that's part of the story, though, is that that's what, you know, that's so your brother, did I, was he, is he a very business minded guy, too? Is he? Yeah. And, and he investor so, entrepreneur himself. Totally. And he, uh, he went to Dartmouth on a, on like a football recruiting invitation. Uh, Ivy's don't give scholarships. So um, we ended up, my dad ended up really grinding and my mom to, to help him get in there and through it. But he's built some um, relationships that have gone above and beyond in, in way of what we've been able to create today. But mm -hmm. out of school, I think he was invited to one NFL camp and he was with the Arizona Cardinals and then they passed. Um, and so he was just like, all right, back to that enterprise commercial. I'm going from division one, double a football to got a job in real estate and then left that and started an entrepreneurial career. Um, is he older so or younger? He's older. He's two years older. But by the time we started building the PLL together, which was in 2017, you know, he had booked 10 years of, of entrepreneurial experience. Wow. Yeah. So it was super helpful. I could bring, you know, subject matter experience and expertise in lacrosse and media marketing savvy. And then he was building the bones of the business and fundraising and such. Wow. Yeah. Um, do you think that you'd be where you are without him? I, I wouldn't have found it in someone else or would it have taken longer? I mean, it's a great question. I, I don't think I would be playing professional lacrosse without him. I mean, him and I were basically attached at the hip when we were younger and fought all the time. We had to put a rule together by the time we were in our teens that we had to be on the same team and like neighborhood ball. Oh, because um, otherwise. Yeah, we were flashed oh. all the time. Yeah, I mean, all the time, even over stupid shit. Like, are you guys the same size? Are you bigger than him? He's, I'm a little bit taller than him now, um, but he was always bigger than me. I and mean, he was a D tackle at Dartmouth and the captain mm -hmm. of the football team, and he was 300 pounds. Okay. So he, he was a he was a big dude, and now you know he's caught all the weight since um, leaving football. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, he could throw me across the room pretty easily. Um, and so we had that rule. And then even today, like when we ever get into like some type of exhibition, um, we'll play on the same team. But so sport was a, as, was a connective tissue for us. And uh, to answer your question on the PLL, wouldn't have done it. I don't think another business partner would have worked either because it was so hard, especially in the first year and a half, because we basically took over the existing league at the time, the league that was paying me $6,500 as a rookie to play. Uh, and we took most of the top players in that league in year one to come join us. And there was just mudslinging like behind the scenes between their ownership groups and, and Mike and I. And so we got in, we had like many of many late nights, um, stressed, uh, finger pointing, you know, I was still, you know, really focused on playing at the highest level and he needed me to, and the league needed me to. And so there was always this dynamic of me training for three hours a day and, 
him being like, when the fuck are you coming back to the office? Like, I need your eyes and ears on this. And, uh, and it's always been disproportionate up to that degree because I still play and, and he right. shoulders a lot of the business. Where do you guys, um, where's the sort of delegation of work? What are you, what, is, what are you a little better at or have a better eye for him? What is he a little better at? Yeah, that, that's also how our relationship has evolved as uh, more mature people, I would say, from when we were in our teens fighting all the time. Natural. Uh, yeah. But, you know, he's, he's really egoless and we also appreciate each other's skill sets and are, uh, are always complimenting each other. It's like a romantic relationship or any type of partnership that you're in. And there's a reason why in a lot of business schools, they bring in relationship therapists to teach a course that's often mandated, whether it's at GSB or Harvard Business School, is your business partner is, you know, it's your second wife or second husband. And, um, and so you have to be thoughtful. You have to check in. You have to be complimentary. You can't take advantage of that person. Yeah. Uh, super open and honest. And that's gotten to us a place where, you know, I feel this almost daily. I get to take part in the sexy side of the business. Like I oversee our media and content strategy and marketing. Um, and, you know, kind of, we call it our ops, but basically the product on field. And Mike does everything from fundraising to management of our entire org chart to, um, you know, kind of overseeing legal and HR um, and, and the general but business development. But is that what he's better at? Because I, better I found at. this with, I found this with um, you know, in my own life where I look at some jobs that people are doing and I'm thinking, oh, that must not be that fun. They freaking love it. Like love it. there are certain aspects of life. Thank God everybody's different because there's somebody that loves the details, somebody that loves being on camera, somebody, you know, so just because what he's doing is not what would be fun for you doesn't mean that that's not fun for him. And that's where like everyone has their role. And so as I'm kind of curious how, where your, your main role with PLL and your own brand, like, yeah, you know, it, I mean, that's, and that's, what's made it so great. Is it just really fit nicely, right? Yeah. Like he, he runs the business. I basically think through and execute the strategy and the media and the distribution of it. And that's what you need in sports. I mean, we're a, a inside outside business. Not every, like take some of the most valuable companies in the world. The most valuable companies in the world are, are technology companies and they're SaaS businesses. So they sell software as a service. And you basically have this product as an entrepreneur that you build and you test with your engineers and you hope to achieve what they call product market fit, where there's enough consumers out there that like your product. And then you raise money to hire, to basically build a huge sales organization so you can grow revenue and then you sell your business and it's pretty linear and you don't have to deal with the sh like PR and like the, whether or not people know the founders or they're consuming the product and judging it. Sports, entertainment, entertainment is, is Hollywood and music really uh, are so public facing and the ability to constantly gather attention but galvanize the attention of your consumer drives the value of your company mm -hmm. and that is what lacrosse has never done in its professional existence it's what the nfl the nba um the nhl indycar nascar all these uh, properties have grown to become successful at but then there's the whole side of the company that's behind the scenes and that's making sure that the business 
has profitability or at least a path to profitability and is managing shareholders and is you know communicating with the players and all this other stuff that uh is so heavy and so dense and that's what he leads mm-hmm. um and he's built for it because he's really really talented at it and he's sharp around seeing the forest with the trees mm. one of the things that is interesting and different about PLL is that the players have equity. Is that right? They, yep. They're equity. Sh- they're shareholders in the in the company. Mm-hmm. Whose idea was that, and how is that working? I mean, I know it's early on, and that the league started and officially under you uh, in 2019, right? Summer of yeah. 19. Yep. But how is that working? Yeah, I mean, well, and we- whose idea was that to you know, and why? Like, why would you not want to just own the whole thing? Yeah. Well. So it's a good question. Why? Because when we when we went about building the PLL, we saw the opportunity in our industry, which is lacrosse and sports business and sports media. We could have just built another mousetrap, another version of what's out there for team sports leagues. They're called trade associations, and found ownership groups and launched teams and markets, and probably would have been okay. But we were also at this moment in time, and this is like. 10 and a half years into the social media era where the power dynamic has shifted from teams and owners to players and entertainers. And um, you've seen that come about through athletes investing, athletes taking equity and brand partnerships and athletes owning teams and realizing that it doesn't have to be a fleeting career, which is where sports has had all the leverage over us for so long is the average expectancy of most athletes is two to four years. Totally. And so what we were like is, Hey, if we, if we are innovators, like we say we are, and if we want to disrupt sports, let's do more than just start a new league. Let's change the way that maybe professional sports at the team level function with talent. And so we're a true single entity, meaning that the, the, the governing body of the PLL, so our capitalization table, um, has everything from owners to our PLL employees to our players on it. And the teams are, are owned by that overarching body. At some point, it may shift to a trade association or what the MLS has had, which are still single entity, but they have investor operators, which are essentially their owners that uh, then govern their teams. It can get a little bit complicated, but what we do with the equity is we basically are, if we're a single entity, much like uh, a, a technology startup in Silicon Valley, we'll just treat our players like our employees. And if they're coming in early and putting all this sweat equity on the field, why not as part of their comp package, we give them uh, stock. And so hmm. um, Mike built the mechanics of it, but it was, I think it was both of our ideas to, to again, to, to take advantage of starting a league in 2019 and what might that look like with the trend of what we're seeing in sports Hmm. how has it helped you do you think or has it yeah i mean i think is it difficult to tell at this point yeah i I think you could look at it both ways i think it is still early and difficult to tell but i think what we get early on is just greater participation from players and less divisiveness i mean I, i tell people you know, at least analogously, there's no really rhyme or reason when a commissioner walks out to hand out the trophy or the MVP where they're booed by the fans, you know, and like, you know, 
one of the, I think probably the most longstanding television show, at least in, in the U S and successful by many counts is the office, which taps into the psychology of us as people to hate your boss or like when you're in the workplace, understanding division of authority. And uh, I think that lives in sports, like players are drafted and they're like, all right, it's us versus the owners or, you know, I'm a, my GM who's deciding on my wage is my enemy. And uh, what we got from giving players shares in the business was like, Hey, we're in this together. And when we have brand partners come in and they're doing uh, content shoots on the grounds of game weekends, like our players are, are much more willing and excited to be a part of it because they know that as the company grows, then their value creation grows too. Uh, and that was our bet because we knew like it's really, really competitive out there. You know, it wasn't about beating Major League Lacrosse, which was the original league. It was about getting to a place where we're a summer sport. We're competing with MLS and we're competing with, you know, the NBA and the NHL when they're finishing up in June. And like, how do we take a slice of those revenues from television contracts to sponsorship? And, um, you know, the good news is they continue to grow and and create a bigger pie. And we're just trying to you know, participate in it as well. The fact that it came, that it started officially in 2019, like you probably in last year were going, Oh shit. Like I I'm, did you, how did it, what happened? Like what, I mean, obviously I I feel like you probably feel like it's starting this year almost just (laughs) with the way that it went. Um, I mean, uh, I'm just thinking content, 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 you maybe filmed extra personal content, but like for stuff on the field and getting in amongst with the fans. And, you know, I know that it's also a, not a city-based sport in that the whole league goes around together. Correct. That's right. So, um, but just getting to the fans in general, I mean, shit, right. What happened? I mean, if, if, when Mike and I were on the fundraising trail in 2017, if we had a crystal ball that said we would hit, be hit with this global pandemic in 2020, we'd be like, no, we're not doing this. And our right. investment, we wouldn't have been able to raise money either. Right. It was, yeah, it was hell. <laughs> um, and we're still like meeting with our COVID committee on a weekly basis and our COO leads that process and you have different variants now. And it's, it's just, do you, a, you know what I always say, say this because of watching sports and I love all sports. So, um, but when I watch sports and maybe I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I don't really care. Um, there must be so much like pomp and circumstance, just like doing what is politically correct versus what is actually sensical. Because when I watch like basketball just ended recently, but, but watching them be on the side with their masks sitting next to each other and then being on the court together. And, you know, I mean, you just watch that and you're like, this is not sensical. It's ridiculous. And this is all for appearance purposes. Like you must be over the bullshit of what it takes to just like play the sport. Yeah, it, it is super complicated. It goes back to that public and private profile that we have to have as a business. Okay. Very few companies have to juggle that. But the reality is when we're casted on NBC, owned and operated broadcast and cable and Peacock and same thing with the NBA through Turner and ESPN is like you just have people watching you and, um, and you have to uh, demonstrate code. 
because if you don't, the flip side is, is you can get crushed, especially if there's a slip. And I agree on like the nonsensical stuff can be a, a little bit inane. It can feel inane where like guys are wearing their mask on the sideline and then they're like on the floor and they take their mask off and you're just like, well, I don't get it. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the school system from time to time. Like you, yeah. you have to, you have to educate and you have to get in line. You have to do things certain ways uh, to make sure that it, at least like the boxes are checked. The other piece is for us as a league uh, we we actually take it out of our hands as as operators, and so we brought on an external COVID medical committee that makes decisions. Mm-hmm. And that way, like we have the professionals doing it, and we adhere to their policies, and uh, that's that's super important. And it's at the least same you don't thing. have to make the decisions because you know that is always a, a political disaster. And also, then say there's a slip up, right, or something happens. It's a, it's it's why in sports, and maybe you can share your own perspectives of this, or or how how you operate, or perhaps even the arc that you've had as an athlete getting to where you are and being like one of the best of that's ever played versus when you were younger is that there's so much stuff I can, this is from my perspective that you do early on because you just can't give someone a reason. Yeah. And then later on you just go, you know what? And, and then of course, you know, this is not applying. This is not the same thing for, you know, protocols and things like that, but it's out of your hands. And then you don't have to worry about being judged for it where, you know, as an athlete, you, you just make sure that you do everything possible that no one can go. That's why. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and that's, that's part of our, our job as entertainers. And I remember Peter Gruber telling me that early on when I was uh, pitching him on investing in the league and he didn't. Um, But he grew up playing lacrosse and, and does think uh, highly of, of what we're creating. But he had said a couple of things when I was like kind of pitching him on media strategy. He was like, sports is not entertainment. He was like, sports is show business. Like this is, this is full-on show business, the business you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing he was like, can we figure out how to play lacrosse without helmets, which is a whole other conversation. Unlikely because the, the ball is so dense and there's concussion fears and all this other stuff. But he, but his point around show business is if you think about athletes who are personified globally, a lot of them is non-helmet sports unless you're a quarterback. And quarterbacks, you know, were honestly, there were a crop that tried to unionize before the NFLPA. It was the quarterbacks club. And, and yeah, and there is like a dynamic, uh, between quarterbacks and, and other skilled players because they just are the most well-known they're in the press conferences, the most, they have the ball in their hands, the most, and people know what their face looks like. Yep. Helmet sports is difficult. Soccer, basketball, I know what you mean. Global icons. <laughs> exactly. There you go. I mean, if it weren't for the media outside of the car, if it wasn't for the interviews, if it wasn't for the talk shows, if it wasn't for, you know, my version of the, the production, my version of the content, 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 um, people wouldn't know me either. And, you know, that's, I was, I, I, you know, that's definitely, I used to say that racing had a problem because we weren't a city, meaning, Hmm. you know, people, and maybe you guys have, are going to face the same sort of thing, but you, you know, you cheer for, uh, you know, you, you cheer for the bears because you live in Chicago, right. Hmm. Or you, but I don't, as a race car driver, you don't live anywhere. So, you know, nobody cheers for me because I'm from Illinois. Um, I don't have all of Illinois behind me. So I feel like that's a reason, but you, you know, pointing out the helmet thing, that's absolutely another. I mean, if you don't have an image, there's nothing for someone to sort of grab onto. And if you're wearing your helmet, you're probably not being interviewed. So it's only through the other stuff that you do, which 
is hard to get, you know, you yeah. have to, it's kind of the cart before the horse. It's like, you know, something that you're doing has to be popular enough that people want to actually talk to you. hundred percent. I mean, you bring up a really interesting point. Maybe we'll, we'll have conversations behind the scenes. So, uh, so I could figure this out a little bit more. Uh, we can't give away all of our sauce. Um, but <laughs> like we used to think about like you and your sport and other athletes and individual sports and say, see, you don't need geo because if someone has such a big audience and their narrative is told away from the racetrack, then people all over the world are going to be Danica Patrick fans and not run the risk of if Danica is set up in Chicago, well, because, you know, Boston hates Chicago, she's going to lose that potential fan base. So that was the view we had. However, we also look at the city model now, which we think will grow into at some point. It's just at our stage, we needed every lacrosse fan in the world to have a reason to support the PLL at the time. And we didn't want to ostracize any by when we launched yeah. with six teams only in six cities. But you know, the, the grass is greener always. And I guess to your to your other other question I didn't answer because I went off on a tangent on uh, Peter Goober is is like there what I run up against consistently now and it's helping me grow as a as a business person and person is that um, being an athlete and being talent is so much different than being an operator or or the owner and while i've been doing both it's been really hard but it gives me a a much more empathetic look on both sides than what other leagues have which is like clear division of church state and so where we make decisions at a, as a league is much different than where i make decisions as a player or other athletes do we, we like as a league, you have to get it right. And you have to be a lot of times neutral and you have to be, um, you know, cordial, respectful. You have to have, um, you know, customer service in place for all ranges of experiences. Um, you can't uh, ostracize any cohort of people. And you just, that's like how you're measured and you have to roll out product. Mm. Um, players, you know, their personal opinions actually matter and matter a ton. And so, uh, and they all, they matter more than ever, I think now, because we're starting to hopefully starting to get to a place after 2020, where we can recognize that every human's experience is unique to the next. And we develop our thoughts and our decisions based on not just how we were raised or what market we were raised in or who we dated or who our friends were or how our parents were. We actually have these decisions that are kind of baked in us from our parents' parents and their parents' parents, especially for those that came over from other countries. And, um, and what our country tries to do is slate us into binary thinking. Totally. And it's, it's impossible to achieve. So yeah, nobody actually fits into one little box either no. in any way. No. It's like, you know, even if we're going like red or blue, like in the country, like, don't we kind of want the most Republican Democrat and the most Democratic Republican? I mean, don't we actually want kind of in the middle? And I'm, I think this kind of is across the board, like completely polarizing figures have their niche and have their group, but they're not the masses. Like, right. you know, so I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, the, the look, the, the democratic system that we have in place, when it works, it works better than any other country in the world. Um, but as it polarizes, um, it becomes really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it 
um, on the Hill more in the last decade and two decades than we even saw than the decades that preceded that. But if you look at the Electoral College map in the 90s, it was much different than it is today. And so you can make a, a, a conclusion that like, wow, our country has gotten more divisive. And like, isn't that the opposite of the way that we should be growing and evolving? We should be coming together more. So what oh, are the, I agree. What are the, the divides? Um, I mean, I posted some story the other day that was like, you know, the real pandemic is the division. And, you know, I mean, yes, there's real things going on, but it's kind of just a point to be made that, um, you know, even, I mean, we're not going to go down this road, but even from a, from a, from a, from a vaccination standpoint, the people, they get it, do it to be healthy and the people that don't do it to be healthy. Like we're all like, we're all actually so much closer than we realize, but there's so many things. It could be sports that divide us. It could be, you know, like, you know, Michigan versus Ohio, right? Like it could be, there's so many different things that create division and you're totally right. This is, we're going in the wrong direction. And I wonder if it's, um, I wonder if the way that it works in, in general is that there has to be such a stretch that you find the middle because yeah. there's clearly being a stretch in lots of different ways in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can look at it as, as a spectrum and the polarizing ends, you can look at it as a pendulum too. When, when the pendulum swings really high in one direction, it's going to swing back in the other at some point. Uh, and that's how our lives go too. And just from, um, from a psychology standpoint and like Buddhist theory is um, you actually can't feel happy without feeling sad. Uh, because if you were happy all the time, you would have no range. And so your happiness would feel like boredom. And uh, when we do really well and we experience what it means to do really well, you're also going to swing down and do poorly. It's, it's just the ebbs and flows of life. Sure. And yeah. You can't know. I mean, you can't know joy without pain. You would yeah. have no reference point. No reference point. And, uh, and the acceptance of those swings help us stay grounded or temper the bad. And then we also should then recognize that when we're in the good, we should temper the good because if like, you can't have your cake and eat it too, you can't be like, Hey, uh, I won the championship or I won the MVP. And like, let me just bask in that for as long as possible. And then when shit hits the fan, I want to get out of there as quick as possible. No, you can't. So like make sure, and this may apply to people who are finding themselves obsessed over social. And I've been like this before um, is we get it like focused on engagement or impressions or views when a video video that we post does really well. And then like when shit doesn't go well, we're like depressed and sad or angry or no one likes me. And, and so just be mindful of the upswings as much as you are the downswings that will help you get through both. Mm, I love that you uh, talked about like Buddhist theory and what they believe is that, is that something you follow and you've read a lot about? Yeah, I would no way consider myself an expert in Buddhism or Hinduism, but it, uh, it when I got into really mindfulness and meditation, um, I started studying that more because it was helpful for me as an athlete that would stress all the time, um, you know, and it was just, I would imagine that this is the case for, for most athletes, certainly those at the top of their game. It's, and I felt like this since high school, but it's, I love the week of training. I love practicing. And if we had a Saturday game, like Thursday nights and Friday nights are the best. And then as soon as like the game day turns, I would just feel so much pain around like the outcome. 
because I put so much into something to talk about that's binary in sports. We're going to know the result in, in, you know, eight hours when the game's over. And I would just, just have so much exhaust and these fumes just hit, hit, hit. And, uh, and then I'd get out and play. And fortunately, like more times than not, I've done it well than I haven't. But when I do it well, it was like met my expectations and I'd move on and I'd want more constantly. And when right. I do poorly, it would sit on me like a cloud for weeks and sometimes years. And I was just like, this isn't right. Like one, how do I relieve some of these game day stressors that I feel? And then two is how do I get the fuck over myself? You know, like this, people who care about me or lacrosse and the team that I was on, yeah, they're pissed when we lose. But then they did go back to their life. Like the world doesn't revolve around us, no matter what you do. And that type of like mentality and approach to solving for that taps into like origins of Buddhism. And so that's where uh, I find a lot of relief in that. Wow. How did you, I'm not going to say you stumbled on it, but what led you there versus going to church or versus I'm going to find some other way to get this sort of, um, built up pressure or anxiety out. I, I don't know. You yeah. could have taken it any direction you wanted, but you went that one. How did it, how did that become the thing? Yeah. I mean, I grew up pretty stout Catholic and my dad is, is, is still very much practicing uh, Christian and, and the rest of our family is. And the principles you get in faith, whether it doesn't matter the denomination are um, I think are like strong moral fiber decision-making, care for your neighbor, uh, work ethic. And those things uh, really are amplified in sport. The Mm -hmm. work ethic piece, care for your teammates, your neighbor, and like good decision-making. But I I found that like where I leaned on, you know, my faith growing up was just saying that like, you know, God has a plan. It's going to be better. Pray for a better outcome. And like, and I just felt like that that wasn't solving for my pain. Yeah. Right. It's not, um, it's like a very temporary band aid, but it's not root cause. Right. It's just like, huh. It's like some, it's like a mantra almost. Right. And um, you know, I'm still a a practicing Christian, but I I felt like related to sport, that like there was this was just how i was feeling and there wasn't any intervention that was going to help it i was the one who was going to help it Mm. and in 2014 uh there was like two things that happened back to back i was playing my second world championship with team usa we had by most counts the best team to ever play and we got upset in the final and and lost the gold medal to canada and the following week went back to my pro team in Boston and I broke my foot. So like at the time I lost what was considered the biggest game in like American lacrosse history. And I was, you know, the top player on the team and I broke my foot and it was like, okay, my career's over. Um, and I went into this like depressive state and was just up on uh, my couch all day for, you know, four months. And my agency at the time was like, I think you should, meet this sports psychologist that works with some of our other athletes. Um, and that's where it started, but it was more focused on like, Hey, your career's not over. You're 28. You're at the top of your game. This happens to a lot of athletes. You're going to be fine. And it led to 
other things like dealing with frustrations on the field, being more mindful and present in the locker room, building better relationships with teammates. Um, and then that led me into meditation. And then mm. I was using an app called Headspace at the time. Yeah, I've used that. Yeah. And my like kind of entrepreneurial mind was like, I wonder who's the guy who started this? What's the business like? Is it successful? So I looked up Andy Puttacombe and I read his story and he was a converted uh, Christian or some denomination over to a monk and then found a business partner that he was helping um, just on the psychology side, say, Hey, let me leave my ad agency. And I'm like selling headspace right now. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, that, it's a story. yeah, and it was, a, it was a story for me. And, and, you know, fast forward to actually, you asked about 2020. So Red Bull was still one of my partners and they knew that I'd been on the app for seven years or so. And, and, uh, they connected me with Andy Puttacombe and I had a private session with him which was like a dream right? <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah life works its way out in so many wow different- well i mean y- you know i feel like the basis of buddhism has so much to do with the self and accountability and going within yourself and you know i even just think about you you starting the lacrosse league premier lacrosse lacrosse league that it's about you just said to yourself, kind of like you just did, well, why don't I just do it myself, right? Why don't I just start the league? It's a, it's accountability. It's something you can do yourself instead of looking at it in the other way, which is it's someone else's problem, which I, I, I'm not, I'm, there's so many wonderful things about all religions. I just think that, you know, there's some downfalls too. And allowing some, like putting your problem onto somebody or something else to solve it is just not going to fix it. And so if you were to look at lacrosse and say, oh, I can't believe this isn't bigger. I can't believe. And so instead it's like this mindset or this new paradigm that you live in where you go, hmm, how could I do this? What what could I do to, it's like full accountability. And I think that as people, we're completely limitless and it's totally our environment. It's our, it's our, our, our upbringing as well as our friends and the people that we know and our social situation and where we live. And there's so many things that sort of craft our opinion or perspective of how things are supposed to go, but it's limitless. And when you start to like realize that you just go, Oh, I don't know. I'll just start a league then. Like, yeah. To me, that feels like a, like a branch of Buddhism in a way. Yeah. yeah. In a way, for sure. I, I think that I, I mean, in, to be honest, I was a part of the cohort of people that would always go, why isn't it better? Why don't they just do the work? Yeah. And uh, man, for, for building a league, it, it actually was so much work and more than we even accounted for. And there were many times where we kind of sat across the room from each other and Mike and I had just been like, this is, this is too much. And also no wonder the former owners were in many cases, like, fuck this, and we're not going to do this. And we'll just continue to invest bare minimum. And, and hopefully, um, you know, the pendulum swings in lacrosse's direction on its own, which historically has never happened in any league, not the NBA, not the NFL, not Major League Baseball. There's no professional sport that has gained momentum from bottom up growth. Those sports are actually Olympic sports. And they only come every four years. There's a reason why. I saw lots of them and I'm like, that's a sport. There are so many amazing sports out there 
that haven't figured out the professional side of it yet. And they go away after college. Well, then how do you do it? If it's not bottom up, then what is it? That's, that's the, that was the challenge. We were like, all right, we've got to raise capital. We've got to hire a bunch of hardworking employees to roll our fucking sleeves up every single day, take 20 no's every single day and go out and try to build this thing. And it's going to take a ton of energy. It's going to be more, uh, you know, more difficult than it is easy and will only get more difficult. It's basically uh, a startup. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's, it's building a company. It's the same thing. If, if we weren't as athletes growing up, so consumed by the fun of our sport and how much we enjoyed it, we would have taken a step back and been like, God damn, look how much work we're putting into this every single day. Mm. And it's sometimes the, the own fault of us as a league and, and athletes that we only often get depicted for their greatness and all of the progress. And that creates this false narrative in a way yeah. for people. I've talked about it with Don Garber, who's uh, who's become a mentor and um, and friend, and uh, he's the commissioner of MLS. And what they've done over the last 25, 30 years, and what we see now is certainly not what it was in the 90s. And he still says, like, every day they're grinding and making decisions and figuring out how to solve COVID like we did and play games. And the other side of it is their athletes and the audience thinks that they sit at the top of an ivory tower and it's like, you know, playing a video game and super fun. And it never is. It just isn't. It's hard. So what makes a sport popular? Oof. Well, not wearing helmets. Yeah. Not wearing helmets. (laughs) Um, You've got to have meaningful distribution. So one of the reasons why we built the tour based model in the first place is so we could get a network deal. Because if we went building from the ground up in cities with individual owners, we would have had to either rent out stadiums in each market or build stadiums, which would have taken more capital. The renting of venues makes it really difficult for any league to build their schedule. I mean, absent in the NFL, which basically has carte blanche, like even the MLS that owns all their venues, they take till middle of January to announce their schedule because there's so many back and forth on optimizing who's home, who's away at what time. And then you go to the networks and say, here's our game schedule. Well, if you don't have any product market fit, if we're a startup, as I talked about earlier, i.e. ratings, we're not going to get a network deal because we have nothing to present in 2017 when Mike and I were pitching our story. So instead we went, this tour-based model means we're going to go to Boston and take out Gillette for three days. Do you have any windows that are available on NBC or NBC Sports that weekend? And if so, boom, that's when our games are. And right. so we kind of did like this inside-out model right. uh, to capitalize on how do you make it popular Well, you get on TV. Um, and then the second is you get brand brands to come in and invest. And we treat our – I say invest because we treat our sponsors like investors instead of sponsors. Um, they're investing in the growth. They get equity. They don't, um, but like that's how we treat them, right? And 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 like we we plus them up. We give them a ton of value. We take care of them um, because we know it's a different type of investment that they're making. It's it's unproven, especially in the first two seasons. Um, and then if you get your brand partners to come in and they're starting to market lacrosse, like Gatorade's doing for us, then all of a sudden, like young kids that are seeing Gatorade typically market soccer, basketball, and football, they're going, oh, damn, you know, lacrosse. Maybe maybe if I can be a Gatorade athlete one day, I'll, I'll have a lacrosse stick. And that's how you, like, build it from a media marketing standpoint. 
And then we always felt like if we could roll out the red carpet, if that was our version of that by elevating wages, giving players equity and being on TV, then the product on field is going to be kick ass and people are going to want to watch lacrosse more because they like what they see. I also think that it takes personalities. Oh, no doubt. Um, I think that's probably what I was benefited from was people knew me. People mm -hmm. had a taste of my personality, um, at least one part of my personality, which is probably why people afterwards, when I interview drivers now, they're like, you seem really deep and spiritual and stuff. Is that new? I'm like, no, but there was no space for that. You know, that wasn't mm -hmm. like, you know, something to promote, but people still saw a side of my personality. And so they, you know, they can decide to cheer for you or not. And, um, and so I think that's probably your popularity is that people know you. Like I watched enough videos that I get your personality to some degree, you know, I, I, because I saw you in a raw form. I saw you, I saw you being natural. I saw you at home. I saw you cooking. I saw you, you know, I saw you talking to a group of people at a school. Like I can see these, I can see this sort of, I can see your personality. And so, you know, I've, I've found that to be true too. And racing itself as well. When a driver, you don't always have to put it out there yourself. Um, like you said, sometimes there's enough opportunities to show it. Um, but for, for ones who don't get that, you can, I mean, that's why there's like YouTube sensations. They're not on TV. They're just showing their personality. And so if you have a cool skill, which all your players have cool skill, and then they show their personality, then their people are going to follow and be curious. That's why Colton Hurd at the Indy 500 wanted to meet you because he saw your personality. And so I've always thought this to be true is that, you know, people that aren't willing to be vulnerable, honest, raw emotions up and down, whatever they are and show them um, and somewhat promote themselves and realize that doing the interviews and showing up to things is important. You know, I mean, it's about the effort that you put in to show people who you are to cheer for you. It's, it's one of the, it, you're hundred percent right. I mean, what really Jordan did, but you could say magic and bird to the NBAs of, of, of the eighties was astronomical. I mean, the NBA in the eighties had a horrible reputation and they couldn't fill arenas. And then those stars came in and David Stern at the time, rest in peace, switched his strategy from building up teams to creating enlargement of players. And if you look at what Conor McGregor did to the UFC, even though they were trajecting upward and what you were doing in racing and, and you, you see personalities that take a sport to another level. Mm -hmm. um, some of those, I mean, it's like finding a needle in the haystack to a degree of the, of the caliber of people that I just mentioned, where yeah. it it's perfectly best at what they do. Amazing personality, relatable, yeah. ambitious. And you're like, fuck, I know this, this is amazing. And, yeah. Um, but you know, we're still living in an era where if you're a professional athlete, if you want to get as much out of your, in the grand scheme of things, short career, you've got to step up in, for, in the form of media and you've got to be available to your audience. Many, many athletes don't want to do that. They just want to focus on their craft and that's okay. They'll just never reach the point of economic prosperity or notoriety. That's just honestly part of our business. If we believe that we're a show business, which sports just are, yeah. then, you know, you can participate for skill only, but you're just not going to, you know, bust through the ceiling. Yeah. 
I do have a question for you. You yeah. like, did you struggle with that notoriety related to your ability to continue to perform? I mean, so many people and talking about brand integrations and sponsorship, so many people, they learned about GoDaddy through you. They learned the business. They did so, they did such a great job, but you were a part of that execution and all the fame that you were building. Like, did that mess with you? How were you able to, and what advice could you give to athletes? Mm. Um, well, it's always so different when you're in the middle of it. I'm sure you don't feel your YouTube or online presence, like as a weight, when you're doing a video, you're just being you. So like, I felt the same, like I'd shoot a commercial or we, you know, do, a, you know, do whatever promotional material was asked of me. Um, it's actually kind of interesting because I've seen this transition as I've come out of racing where everyone did it for me. Like everyone had their own media plan. They had their own uh, production schedule. They had their own creative direction and I just showed up. And so when I got done, I have these other companies, um, my wine, my book, whatever, whatever things that I've come out with since my podcast. Um, I never had a system in place to promote anything because it was all done for me. Mm. So I just showed, I would just show up. And so it never felt like there was, there was not a lot that went into it. I just showed up. Does that make sense? So, you know, you talk about like showing up at a game and a whole week's practice before you get there. And so much is on the line. I didn't have that. It wasn't like I came up with some massive media schedule for all these things and my team did it. And I'm like, okay, here we go. It's time. I just showed up. Yeah. And so there was like less and less emotional involvement because it wasn't my idea and it wasn't my team. It wasn't my labor. It was all these companies. And so I guess that's probably part of why I just never felt the sort of gravity or the weight of anything is that it just, it just didn't have a lot of energy behind it. Mm -hmm. um, it was all within the racing. And so of course, when I show up to a race and if it didn't go well, I mean, the amount of times that I was like bawling in my bus about the way qualifying went or a way a race went or something like that, you know, the, that happened, but that was because that was what I put the effort into, not the PR side and not the promotional side. And so, um, and then I think just in general, I was always, since I was attractive to the media um, for whatever reasons, I think for whatever reasons, uh, it's probably easier to tell from the outside than the inside, but I was able to be myself all the time. I never felt like I had to overcompensate and cater to someone here or there. It was funny the other day, uh, Ryan Holiday, who has the yeah. Daily Stoic, and I don't know if you know who he is. Um, yeah, I DLL. Ryan's a good friend of mine. Oh, really? Yeah, he was interviewing Brad Keselowski. So he DM'd me and was like, hey, I'm interviewing Brad Keselowski. He's a NASCAR driver. Yeah. Anything you want me to know or I should ask him. So I gave him a bunch of info. And then, but one of the things I said was like, don't let him give you some bullshit NASCAR race car driver in answer. Like, oh, you know, some throwaway. And so he did that. And I think he said that Brad said, well, since I know I can't just give you some BS answer. And then he goes, there was some XYZs that played in to this decision. Yeah. Like he made him give more. And so I never 
I never had to do the bullshit answers. Yeah. Like it was, and so it was kind of the cart before the horse thing. I think people like to interview me because I didn't give those bullshit answers. That's and correct. so you saw my personality and I'm going on and on, but I think that's a lot of the reason why I was able to be in the position that I was is because I was myself from the beginning and I never had, I never changed. I never, you know, I was always the same me, you know? So it wasn't, there was never a, and that's also in my personal life too. There's no course correction. There's no like, oh, guess what Danica was doing, you know, in the off season, like yes, what you see is what you get. And so. Yeah. And I think that's more rare um, and a quality of yours that you brought to a world that had been around for a long time is like, we, we often get asked like who our sports idols were and there's this tendency. Well, there's two things. One, people think that we're natural or born entertainers or marketers because we're on screen. And I always say like, there's, there's nothing that depicts uh, the difference between an athlete and an entertainer is when you, every off season you see like galas or, or like fashion runways for charities and they, and they bring like NFL players and NBA players and people are like, Oh, you're used to performing in front of crowds and stuff. And you're going to be great on the runway. And we like have our hands in our pockets, nervous as hell looking around and like, you know, see an athlete do a cameo how many, entourage. How many, how many runways have you walked on? <laughs> small ones, <laughs> small ones in, in my hometown. But okay. like, <laughs> yeah, but like you see athletes do cameos on screen and you're like, why, why is there a disconnect? Well, when we're on screen doing what we do every day, we don't even think about being on screen and we're just great at what we do and it, it mm -hmm. comes seamless. But we're not natural entertainers. And even the transition from athletes to supposed to be good on social, you need to like help them understand that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what, what you, what sounds like what you did, which is different than a lot of athletes because we're not born entertainers, is we look to those sports idols and how they handle interviews and we try to do the same thing. And I see that a lot with athletes as they, are performing or trying to be people who they are not. Mm. And um, yeah, and it's rare that you have someone who just comes in on a bash and is like, this is who yeah. I am. And, and that's a quality. Well, I, I've thought a lot about this in a lot of different facets, but it applies to this. But when you are catering to someone or something, it could be your sponsor, it could be a relationship, a partner, and whatever you think that they want, whenever you're catering, you're not actually you. And there's nothing for someone, there's no integrity and essence and transmission of truth in that because you're not you. You're trying to be something or buddy else. And the best thing that anyone could do is be themselves. So what I always said that, uh, what I always thought at least about me was that I don't know what makes me interesting. I don't know why people care what I do. I don't know why people are a fan. Other than the fact that I, all I know is that I'm authentic and that at least that authenticity, you might not agree with it. I might say or do things that you don't agree with, but at least you can sense my authenticity. And I think that's what resonates. People are so afraid of being wrong or being... Um, I don't know, unattractive or being um, unintelligent or being goofy in some way. And so they're not them, but really it's 
it's, it's being yourself and being however it is that you're different. I mean, that was my, the name of my game. Like, I mean, I know that's what helped me get so far in racing was that I was different and being a girl. It's the stuff that makes you the most different, that makes you the most special. And when you're trying to be something you're not and, and, and trying to be like somebody else, the truth is you'll never be that person. You'll never be as good as that person. You at best can be second, which makes them not look at you. It makes them still look at them. Yep. And so the more you can embody who you are, and be honest, the more it resonates with people. And I think that as a culture, we're becoming really sensitive to the frequency of truth. And we can tell when someone is themselves and when they're not. Yeah, I mean, it's so well put. And um, there's not much to add outside of kind of thinking through the, the Buddhist mindset, but also, you know, the challenges that athletes have that are looking to find their authentic voice is that you know, we might be set up for disaster with our agency and brands and publicists. I mean, you're talking about like 21 year olds that are coming into pro sports. And it's like, I mean, when you write a book, you just did this as well. It's like, what's the theme? What's the one thing that you can expound on that you're the expert and let's go along there. I don't care, Danica, if you have 25 other interests, we have to be very concerted and we have to know when you go and speak and do your book tour that this is the expertise that people are going to get. And you're like, well, uh, I feel kind of cornered now. And so I think um, for you and hopefully for me at this stage, as we've gotten older and picked up different experiences is we're finding and continue to build our authentic voice. Yeah. Young people don't rush it. Like, and, and to Danica's point, like be you in that moment and don't think that that moment is permanent. And that's the mm -hmm. only thing you stand for. You will grow, you will change, you will lose, you will win. And, and mm. like the message might change five years from now. The people you date will change five and 10 years from now. And that's all good. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so let your authentic voice evolve. But um, don't worry about like, you know, my, one of my favorite writers is Brene Brown. And she oh, says yeah. three Ps, uh, permanence, pervasiveness, um, and uh and uh, what was the last one? Pervasiveness, permanence, and and pers uh, personification. Mm -hmm. So or person personalizing. So our our mind goes into those three areas whenever we uh, whenever we run into a problem. Right? We think that it's permanent and it's never going to change. It becomes pervasive. Like, oh, I lost this game. Now this person thinks I'm a loser and I'm never going to get a starting position again. And my teammates mm -hmm. think I suck. Mm -hmm. Pervasiveness. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and personalizing it is like, this is all on me. And right. I did this and the, you know, I play in a fucking team sport and we lost by a goal in overtime. And it's because, you know, I missed that shot in the fourth quarter. It's like Never mind other every other minute problem. in the game. Yeah. So that's how our brain works. Right. Yeah. I love Renee Brown. And of yeah. course the queen of vulnerability. So what have you realized about yourself in this process and sort of, uh, everything from you know showing more sides of yourself to being squeezed in the professional world of business yeah. like what have you realized over time are your truths at this point in time well about I, who you are yeah so it's dynamic and I'm, and i think like to to my point trying to accept that it'll change and there are things that i'm doing now that i will dislike looking back 10 years from now but I know what I what's made me the athlete that I've been is I have this internal fire mm. um, around competition 
and, and work ethic. Mm-hmm. And I also have an internal fire of fear. And um, I don't like that as a human. Mm-hmm. So like there's the athlete and then there's the person that I'm trying to continue to develop. And you don't really want to live a life that's fear motivated. Right. That be pretty destructive. Right. But for an athlete, it's pretty fucking powerful. Like mm-hmm. the stuff that I would do and I've tapped back into now the later stages of my career so that I don't lose or so that I don't make a mistake or turn the ball over. Like that stuff works in sports. So then what I try to do is, okay, leave that on the field when you practice around the game, try to get distance from that when you're, you know, a person, which is most of my life. And, uh, and so why that, do you think, why do you think it works in sports, but it doesn't work in life? And why do you think it, or why do you think that it works in sports at all? Well, I think because of the binary aspect of sport and the, and binary is not just win losing. It's like how you're performing on the field, the decisions that you make, everything can be pretty routinized and in a playbook and you watch it on film. And it's like, you did this, you did this and that. Mm. Um, and, and fear is such a, mo- a powerful motivator for me. It just always was. And I think we could you know, yeah. go back into my genealogy of the way that I was raised. I think. Oh, that's my favorite, favorite yeah. area to go, but we're not going to get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, three hours. Um, to psychoanalyze people is yeah. fun. Yeah. So, and I think in, in life, the idea that we made the right decision or the wrong decision especially on the wrong side, it's inherently impossible to know if that's the case. Maybe, maybe not is the same, right? Like we don't know, even if we made a decision to do something and it didn't turn out into our favor, we don't know if we didn't make that decision, what would have happened? We just never played it out. So it can't be, the, the other one couldn't be right. It could have actually been worse. And I think that that's much different than sport. Um, and why so many people love sport is like, it's those moments in life where we can, as fans and spectators, get away from the uncertainty of the world and the unknown and focus on something for, for two hours that we know there's going to be an outcome. We know it doesn't actually impact us. I mean, there are the diehards that, you know, I'm, I'm not in sports. I, I'm not going to lose a week of sleep because my favorite team growing up lost a game. It's just not me. Uh, but you know, I love those people. They bring a lot of passion to sport. Um, but like, it's going to be okay. And so it's, it's very entertaining and fun to, to experience sport as a fan. So that's where I think the two differences are. And then Mm. where I am authentically as a person is, is actually what we talked a little bit about, about like meeting people in the middle. And I've learned this in, in building the PLL is that the world and life and business is actually about compromise. Hmm. And if you're ever in a place relationally uh, in business, platonically, where you feel like you got a great deal, call it that way, that means the other person didn't. And like, you're not, you're just not going to move in the right direction if you believe in partnerships, the Hmm. best direction. And we say like at the PLL, the sponsorship business isn't, a, isn't about bringing on new sponsors. It's actually a renewal business. When you bring people in the door, how good are you treating them? And if we get over on a sponsor when we strike the deal and we get this fucking amazing contract, they're going back internally. You can bet they're going, oh, we may have overpaid for this, right? And you're just off to the wrong, uh, to the wrong start. 
Wow. And um, sport is not about compromise. Sport is about, I'm going to fucking beat you and beat you really badly because the rankings will increase in that direction and I'm going to be the champion. And so it's like rewarding the the culture of of overperformance and and outperforming your competitors. Damn, are we like perpetuating this division culture by being athletes? Well, the, good, the good news is that like there's only one percent of one percent of us that, <laughs> right. that go from the lessons which are amazing in sports at a young age to then it becoming your profession. Right. And I think what you and I experience is when sport becomes your perfection or your profession, and you become a perfectionist for a living that like, oh man, now I'm like in the fire. And there are some negative things yeah. about sport um, that can like become a part of our life. Well, I can clearly tell that you are able to separate and that you compartmentalize your life in different ways. And um, while sport's incredibly important to you and it's emotionally, you know, taxing at times, you know, there's another side of you that's able to disconnect and go into the business or go into these other aspects of your life, which keep the balance. And so there's all kinds of like, there's all kinds of micro macro on all kinds of different levels in all different spaces where, you know, on a micro level, you can be binary with your sport and it's all in or out and it's like win or lose, but then you can, you can go into a different area completely and you don't exist there. And so that I, and, and the fact that you, you know, one of the big problems about athletes is that, and I think that's, this is a reason why they hang on is because they don't know what they're going to do next. They don't have something else. They've put everything into this one sport and they've not, I think knowing yourself is a hell of a lot harder than people realize. I, I'm just saying that because I think I'm still learning and I think it's always a bit of a process, but it took me into my mid thirties before I really started to go, Oh yeah, these things make me really happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, you are ahead of the game. Like the fact that you have started the PLL and that you have this entrepreneurial business side mind of you. It's like the successful are, I, I just talked to some guys who started a company called beam. It's a CBD company. Yeah. Um, and they talked about how they were in sports, hockey and baseball and how they just wanted to achieve highly at something else. And so, you know, you just have that same DNA and so you'll be fine, but it's, it's really about how can we, how can you inspire others to learn more about themselves and be more authentic and really know who they are. And so thank you for embodying that and showing that and expressing that in an articulate way that helps people understand that there are, there are sort of drawers for certain aspects of you and knowing when to open and close them is, is part of the, part of the, part of the balance. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, and, and this you know podcast went in so many different directions. I enjoyed it. And, and there was, all, I think like, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, when you start, when I start saying something, I'm like, oh, fuck, am I going there? And you know, this is going to be weird. But like, I think that goes to the authenticity of, mm -hmm. of what athletes experience or hope to achieve. Uh, but the thing that I'll, I'll leave you with is, um, you know, I obviously think about this stuff a lot and I read a ton, but I am so hard on myself and life is so hard. And fucks with me in so many different ways all the time. And, uh, and so much that there's a phrase that I hold on to and I like talk to my therapist about it and she's like, no, stop. But I'm like, I guess for those who can't do teach, 
And, uh, and, and so I feel like, you know, sometimes on these forums, because I care so much about personal growth and building companies and being a great athlete that I might be able to speak to it. But like, for those listening, don't be fooled. Like I fail a ton. Uh, you know, this season has been brutal alone. Like it feels like every season is brutal. Um, and then, you know, you have shitty games and you have bad breakups and, it just all happens to it all happens to all of us um and so yeah i uh hopefully there's a couple of things that some people can take and um yeah and i've taken a lot from you and your show so thanks for having oh me. oh thanks well i um i i after i you know started reading more and more and watching more and more i was like you're a really interesting dude and uh i've appreciated your perspectives on things because it's um it's fun to talk to another athlete. There's so much relatability in the process and um, but it crosses over into life too. And so thanks for your vulnerability and honesty about how you feel about stuff. And um, I just I'm I, I gotta watch a lacrosse game. I've never watched one. I'm sorry. I, Here I we are. Now now we've got Danica Patrick watching the PLL. But it's because I've no I know now your personality and I'm curious about you. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. And, and I say that jokingly, we, we know where we are. That's a huge part about life is like practically understanding where you currently stand. That doesn't discount the goals that you set where you want to be. We know that lacrosse is small. I go into every conversation with someone I've met knowing that it's more likely than not that they don't know who the fuck I am or that pro lacrosse uh, has, has never been on their television set. And that's all good. I tell Uber drivers to follow the PLL on Instagram. Like this is building one block hmm. at a time. <laughs> my okay, this is my last question. And so I heard you say that lacrosse is an amalgamation of the best of all sports. So sell me, sell everyone, yeah. go. But, I want to know what this amalgamation looks like to you. Yeah. Well, like going back, if, if, you've, if you've hung on to, to listen to me talk this much, which God bless you if you have, um, <laughs> that, like I played all of those sports growing up. And so soccer, basketball, my brother played football, baseball, swimming, track and field. And what you get in lacrosse is like the artisanship of hockey and baseball. It's a stickball sport, but you string your own stick. So if you care about your personality and your style, like that's what lacrosse is. It's so artisan. And then the second part is if you love contact, I mean, it's a helmet sport, which sucks from a marketing standpoint, but you get to hit the agility of basketball, the endurance of soccer, uh, those, all of those attributes came out and I started playing late. Um, I, it wasn't until I was in my teens, which today's day and age, like, you know, kids are deciding their sport when they're six, um, <laughs> No kidding. but that's how I felt. And when I became really attracted and fell in love with the game is when I learned about its history, which is a Native American sport and stuff that really, yeah. Stuff that we try to tell now. I mean, the game has been around longer than any sport in the world. It's, it's called the creator's game. It's the Hongtik Wahes. It was started in the Iroquois and, um, and it, it goes back to, I mean, talk about when the sport was played without helmets. Um, and it, it's, it's a warrior game. And, um, and it's a sport that we are now through the PLL and our relationships with the Native American community and some of the top players in the world still live in places like Onondaga and Seneca reservations. 
um, are telling those stories for the first time mm -hmm. where people just thought lacrosse was, you know, an, another version of polo played in the Northeast at preparatory schools. I feel smarter now. Well, I appreciate you asking that question. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm going to have to dip into my slice, my tiny little slice of Native American in me um, and mm -hmm. uh, do some research. Yeah. I'm sure we all have some version of it, um, yeah. especially yeah. in indigenous North America. Well, thank you, Paul. And good luck. When does the season start? Well, we it are has started. You're in it. Yeah, we're in it. We're in it. Um, but fair question. You haven't seen it yet. So watch this weekend and this will, this will, will still be in it. I think when this podcast comes out, so, um, we're on NBC, NBC sports, our championship games on September 19th. So it's Sunday, um, on NBC and then all of our games are available on Peacock and, um, I'm playing this weekend in Albany. Mm. And you have a podcast too. I have a podcast called, called Suiting Up. Up. Yep. I'll hopefully get you on it um, now as, as a favor. Um, and, and maybe I'll ask you what your, what your first uh, game experience was like and tips for our broadcast because I help oversee those innovations. Happy. I'm very opinionated. So I'm happy to give you whatever, I, whatever, I, whatever I've got. All right. Sounds good. Deal. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.